Next, Gene Shepard. WOR News Time, it's 9.15. story? Oh, listen, it must have been at least ten years ago, right on this show. I predicted that within our time, legends would grow up around the subway. Just as legends grew up over the years around the sea. I mean, you know, great subway riders seeing mysterious shifting images in the darkness of the 23rd Street IRT. Well, wait a minute. You know, you, you, you have to spend a lot of time in a subway to understand that. And for those of you who are living outside of New York, you do not, you, you just really don't realize that the subway to most New Yorkers is an object of fear and hate and love. It's an object of mystery. You know that the subway has been under New York now for over a hundred years? Yes, over a century. People have rode in those dark tunnels deep underground. And I described a scene about ten years ago. I predicted the scene of two old codgers sitting on a bench, waiting, always waiting, waiting, waiting for the great double E train to arrive. And then suddenly out of the darkness a shrieking train roars through the station and it appeared to have no engineer and went screaming out the other side. And the two just sat there knowing full well that they had seen the flying A train. Just like the flying Dutchman. You, you, you know the legend of the flying Dutchman, don't you? Of course. 
you were in the Navy, you would know about that. And there will be the legend of the flying A-train. You laugh? Okay. Listen to this letter. The reason I brought this up, this is a letter from a New Yorker, and I'm going to read it to you in its entirety. Hello, Dolly. It was another surrealistic scene on the New York Dolly, D-A-L-I, Dolly. Surrealist Dolly, not hello, Dolly, oh, 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 Dolly. This is the real Dolly, the one with those unbelievably far-out, fantastic mustaches, you know, the ones that stick out two and a half feet, have bells on the end. It was another surrealistic scene on the New York subway, but seasoned writers were not in the least surprised. This is what actually happened to her, this writer. After an unexpectedly lengthy wait on the not unusually damp and dirty 86th Street Lexington Downtown Express platform, the swelling crowd began to become agitated. Slowly, like a ghost rising from the mist, an immaculately graffitiless, going into battle gray train appeared in the station. Empty. Truly, as each car passed, it was verified. A passengerless subway train. The ideal. Seats and standing room to spare. The train that all subway riders dream of one day finding, coming into the station. Seats, clean, no graffiti. Did the great god of the MTA recognizing our plight at last send us a chance to ride like human beings to actually get a seat? Wide, gleeful grins broke out on the faces of some who stood on the platform waiting as this beautiful train arrived. Obviously, they were novices to the system. Others, the savants among us, smiled knowingly and continued to converse or read newspapers or books. Does the man dying of thirst in the desert believe in the sparkling waters of the oasis before him? <laughs> no. That's the difference between him and the New Yorker. Naturally, the virgin vehicle did not open its doors. It slowly rolled through the station and disappeared from whence it came, backing ever so slowly, slowly out of the station to be seen nevermore. In its place, rattling, banging to make up for lost minutes and to make us stand up and take note, came the daily fare, the usual train. Fifty cents worth, just barely. A dingy, spray-paint-covered message from the big boss. Don't be ridiculous. Packed to the straps with a pulsating mass of sweating, Arctic-ready riders and all their paraphernalia, shopping bags, bicycles, baby buggies, tennis rackets, suitcases, etc., etc., as I slithered and squeezed my way through the crowd, trying to avoid the outstretched, groping hands, it suddenly dawned on me. I never did see either a motorman or a conductor. Only the otherworldly glow from the hypnotizing, glaring, thought-interrupting headlights. I had seen, Shepard, what you had predicted years ago. The ghostly, flying A-train. Mysterious, moving its way forever for the great tunnels under Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, that's right. Hollow laughter. You know, I'll tell you. <laughs> no, this moment of, of, of sudden insight is not is not a thing that any of us are alien to. We've all had it. I just received a letter from a kid. Kid said, Shepard, what was the turning point in your life? Have you noticed that all of novels and all of plays and all of movies are based on the concept of the turning point? Something happens in a guy's life that changes it forever, like it's going to be happy forever. You know, he meets Doris Day, and <laughs> good God Almighty, he meets Doris Day, and we know that Rock and Doris are going to be happy forever, right? That's the turning point. That's what movies are about. The trouble with most people's lives is they have no turning point. That's why we go to the movies, to see other people who have them. <laughs> you know, they actually have turning points. And we, uh, that one, that's one of the reasons why we worship actors. Because an actor has had a dozen turning points. Why, well, everybody knows that Robert Redford was gunned down in Columbia at the end of Sundance Kid, right? But then he came back to catch Nixon. And on the way, he won a Grand Prix. And just glancingly, also became an international ski champion. I mean, those are turning points. I mean, those are turning points. Not like uh, getting promoted from second assistant time salesman to assistant time salesman. Is that a turning point, or is that a kick in the behind? Turning points, that's what we look for. All right, kid, I'll tell you one of my turning points, believe it or not. You want, you want to hear a story about a turning point in a guy's life? Looking back, well, it's, well, incidentally, I'd have to say about turning points. You'd never recognize a turning point until it's long gone. How's that for a, a piece of uh, folk, folk wisdom? In other words, you'd never realize your life was changed by something until you've gone a few years and you suddenly look back and you say, wow, that's when it happened. You want to hear a dumb turning point? All right, a typical human being dumb turning point, right? I mean, this is the kind they just don't make movies about. I have just been sworn into the Boy Scouts. You know, you, you raise your hand and you swear allegiance to the Boy Scouts. I can still do the scout salute. Do any of you know how the scout salute is? Come on. That's it. That's it. The little finger like that curled under, up like that. Okay, and you hold your hand up. I what do you say now? Come on. <laughs> you're going to be clean and reverent. You're going to... Right. See, he knows it. Look at that. I'll tell you. Once you've taken the scout salute, you know it. You never forget it. Brave, clean, and reverent. Right. And do good deeds. Well, all right, I signed up with Troop 41. Now, Troop 41 had four or five patrols. Now, within every scout troop, they have patrols, right? Now, each patrol has about eight or nine kids in it. Just like in the Army, they have these patrols, you know, <laughs> platoons, really. <laughs> and we, have, we had all these different patrols. Now, the patrol that I was in was the Moose Patrol. 
Now, why it had the, the uh, name Moose is quite a story. There was a lot of argument early in the patrol's life as to what kind of animal it was going to be. You know, some were holding out for lions. Others were holding out for, for tigers. You know, the tiger patrol, the leopard patrol. And some guy rammed through the moose patrol. And I became a member of the moose patrol. They actually had a mole patrol, incidentally, in my in my uh, my scout <laughs> scout troop. Yeah, it was a mole patrol. Have you ever seen the patch with the mole on it? It looks like a little ink blot with whiskers. It's a dumb looking patch, and uh, these kids were really proud of being in the mole patrol. And uh, they like to walk around and say, "We're the mole patrol. We're underground." Ha ha ha! Kids like to all think they're underground. Well, there's nothing underground about a moose. And uh, they had this great patch. It was, you know, the moose. It was a bull moose, a tremendous big spread of antlers. It had great big nose hanging out. And this was before the days of Bullwinkle. So uh, I was into the moose long before Bullwinkle came on. So there I was, inducted into the moose patrol. Now, little did I realize that this was a turning point in my life. Now, I could have gone in the mole patrol. Because each patrol had a patrol leader. That was a kid that was sort of like he was in charge of that patrol. And he was a scout, but usually he was an uh, older scout. He had a little more time in grade. And uh, <laughs> he had this little green bar. So you give him a little green bar with a little gold thread around it, and that makes him a patrol leader. There was also a, an assistant patrol leader. The assistant patrol leader had one green bar. The patrol leader had two. I'm remembering all these various uh, insignia of rank in the patrol, or rather in the, uh, in the Boy Scouts. Now, what kind of a badge does the Tenderfoot have? You remember the Tenderfoot badge? Oh, come on. The Tenderfoot badge is the classic badge. It's the Fleur de Lis. Uh, what was the next rank up? I mean, there was a very distinct ranking in the Boy Scouts. Second class scout was the next rank up. The third rank, which in the Army would say be the equivalent of uh, tech sergeant, roughly, was after second class, what, logically? First class, right. After first class scout came... Now we're beginning to lose you. The sheep are being separated from the goats. And uh, speaking of the goats, this is WOR New York, and it's commercial time. Okay, all right, now we're, 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 we're bogged down around first-class scout, right, gang? Now, do you remember what the insignia of the first-class scout was? <laughs> I know all these things right down to the last flourish, the last gold bar. All right, now, after first-class scout came what? You don't know? Well, have you ever heard the term life scout? Well, he didn't come next. After first class came, no, that was way up there. You're talking about a general. Uh, no, th this is a very definite ranking. After first class scout came star scout. And that was a rank. It didn't mean he was a star. What it meant was he was star, a star scout, which meant that it was a rank, and it had a little star over the badge. It got a, got a badge with a star over it. 
And now you were really high up. You're getting up there, boy. A star scout was roughly the equivalent of getting commissioned. A star scout, of course, they didn't have as many ranks in the commission ranks. The star scout was roughly the equivalent, I would say, in the Boy Scout world, of, uh, let's take uh, Army and uh, Marine rankings. I would say he would be roughly a captain with possibly a little shades of approaching majority. <laughs> he was a little higher than a captain. He was uh, certainly well above the second lieutenants and the first lieutenants. Now, what after that came, after the Star Scout came the what? You should know, I already mentioned it. Life Scout. The Life Scout was really... Well, that, that, by the way, a Life Scout holds that rank for life. Once you get into that, it's it's like, uh, you know, flag rank. Uh, so uh, a life scout would be roughly the equivalent of uh, a bird colonel or possibly a brigadier general. In Navy parlance, he would be a one-star admiral. He would be above a captain, a four-striper. Uh, he would also, I'd say he would be roughly a, uh, a, a brigadier general or a one-star admiral. What was then the final rank? Eagle Scout. The Eagle Scout would be, well, that would be a four-star general in the Boy Scout world. Attained by few. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there were many who were called, but very few were ultimately chosen. And, uh, and, and usually a, a, a an Eagle Scout was a scout who was usually old enough to know better. Uh, by, by the time you attained Eagle rank, you were probably close to 20, 18, 19, something like that. Because you had to have done so many things to get to be an Eagle Scout. You have to get all those merit badges, and you have to go to so many, uh, so many field trips, and you have to fill out so many uh, question and answer. They were taking tests constantly. You had to do all this stuff, and finally, when you were given your eagle rank, you were given it at a big ceremony. They, usually every year, uh, they had what they call this jamboree. And at the jam, when all the scouts, all the troops locally would have this great big weekly meeting, like, in the, like a convention. Uh, it was uh, almost like a mini American Legion convention. All the scouts came, and they wore their merit badge uh, uh, belts, or rather the merit badge sashes across the front, you know, the, the uniforms and stuff. And on one big night, the various, uh, well, the brand-new Eagle Scouts were invested with their rank. Fantastic moment. Now, what presidents in our time have been Eagle Scouts? Who? Yes, there were several presidents within the past, uh, uh, I'd say, in this century. Uh, after all, the Boy Scouts started about World War One. Where, what, uh, what was the? Uh, uh, how many presidents have been Eagle Scouts? Well, that's a pretty good guess. In fact, you're quite accurate. Who were they? <laughs> You'd be surprised who they were. No, you're wrong. You would think of it that he would be. He didn't have to mess around with fake ranks. He had the real thing. 
Uh, when you get up there and you're a five-star general, you're a five-star general. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the, the, I don't want to. I don't want to get bogged down. I'll tell you later. That that comes next semester. I don't want to get bogged down in discussing Eagle Scouts. I never got to be one, but I do recall a turning point in my life. Say, I'm I'm in the Moose Patrol, and there was a kid in the Moose Patrol who was the scout. He was our our patrol leader. He was older, so he was like. 15, 16, something like that. And uh, he was kind of old, so he was a very official kid. He was tall, and he had a complete uniform, which set him off totally from all the rest of the kids I knew that were in the scouts. Each kid had a part of a uniform. Uh, some kids had uh, just this shirt, you know, the khaki shirt with the patch on. I had a hat, one of these great big hats, you know, with a big broad brim. I wish I had that hat. <laughs> it was a great hat. And I had a bandana neckerchief which was in our troops' colors, which were purple and gold. And uh, incidentally, the worst colors that you can have anything made out of because it, it fades like crazy. The five minutes the first water hits it, you got a purple neck with gold splotches on the side. And uh, so here I was, you know, I was all excited about the Boy Scouts. I had been sworn in. I'm an ex-Cub Scout. I'm, la I'm at last in the, in the big time. And we would meet in the basement of the Presbyterian Church. And it was every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Well, the second meeting, we had our patrol meeting. The patrol meets over in one corner uh, by itself. Each patrol would meet, have its little meeting, and then we would have their big thing in the evening, like knot tying and all that stuff. So this kid gets his patrol together, and he says, Now listen, I'm going to get this patrol on the stick. This is going to be a snap to patrol. Not like that damn mole patrol. We are going to be a great patrol, and what we're going to do is win merit badges. Every last one of you guys is going to begin to work on a merit badge. Right now, tonight. Well, this guy was so dynamic that all the kids, me and Schwartz, were in this patrol. So was Flick. We were really impressed by him. His name was Lawrence Stryker. Have you ever heard me mention Lawrence Stryker? Lawrence Stryker was the Richard Corey of our life. You know who Richard Corey was? Well, Richard Corey, I mean, you know, he was tall and elegantly slim, and he wore shining Raymond. Remember Richard Corey? And we all admired him from afar. He seemed to walk in a golden aura. Well, that was Lawrence Stryker. He was something else. I mean, he was he was like, you know, we were all about three feet nine. Stryker was an elegantly slim six-footer at 16. And he wore that uniform like it was sprayed on him. He had more merit badges than you could ever believe they even issued. So, matter of fact, it was that year that he became an Eagle Scout. And, you know, when you're a little kid and you're a tenderfoot, looking up at an Eagle Scout is like, you know, it's like uh, being a, uh, an inductee. Uh, a basic yard bird. And right there in your barracks is a major general. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you just don't know what that's like. And everything he did was so elegant. First of all, I have never seen anybody in my life ride a, back, ride a bicycle backwards like he could. Yeah, he would sit on the handlebar and ride the bike backwards. But he rode it with such grace. He would take his hands off. He'd drift around. And uh, make figure eights. Now, you think that's easy. Ever try it? 
Well, that was just uh, typical of what Stryker could do. Uh, Stryker, for example, could take a knife. Now, listen to this one. He could take a knife, and he'd hold it by the point. That's just the kind of stuff that really knocks kids out. He used to say, okay, now look, watch this. And he'd go, zap, and the knife would turn over about three times in the other. go, zing, pow. He'd stick it right in the wall every time within about an inch and a half of where he wanted it. He could throw a knife. Now, that's one of those little secret talents that you see in movies. Alan Ladd was always throwing knives at people. Remember that? Alan Ladd. He was always taking out this, what, he had this big Bowie knife. Yeah, and he'd go whap like that. The guy would go down. I'll tell you who else was doing it. The henchmen of Dr. Fu Manchu could throw knives. The decoits. They were always throwing knives. And when they threw the knife, they never missed. You, It was over. It was like, uh, you know, the minute you see a knife being thrown in a, in a movie, you know that the guy is dead. Do you agree? Nobody ever misses, you know, the knife falls to the ground and knocks the fern over. And everybody says, what the hell was that for? That stupid thing you did, Bowie. You just threw your knife in a spittoon. Now look at it. Now, they, they, uh, <laughs> they really hit it, see? Well, Lawrence Stryker could really hit things with the knife. He could throw a knife. Well, now, this may not impress you now. At this, I don't know whether it would or not. I don't know whether you know a guy that can throw a knife. You probably don't, but I, once in my life, knew a guy that could throw a knife. And and Schwartz and I, you know, we'd see him do this. He would always do it. So he'd say, oh, look, you guys, and he had two different ways of throwing him. For, for example, he would take the knife. There was another way he would take it. And he would lay the knife across the palm of his hand with the, with the blade pointing out towards the fingers. And he would just take the knife and just flip it underhand like a, like a shot, man. That thing would go like a bullet. Shroom. Bow, right into the wall. But when he was really being spectacular and accurate, he would take the knife, hold it by the tip, and he would just flip it. That's the way that uh, Alan Ladd did it, see? He would just go, and it would go, boom. Oh, fantastic. Well, Schwartz and I, the first minute we saw that, we went home, and the, the, the two of us went to Schwartz's kitchen and took the bread knife. <laughs> and we started to practice with the bread knife. Yeah, this bread knife. You know, all homes got a bread knife, see? Well, to begin with, we didn't realize that throwing a bread knife is impossible. Even uh, uh, Bowie would have had trouble throwing a, a, a bread knife because a bread knife is not well balanced. It's a great big knife. What you need is what they call... There's a, there's a phrase for a knife like that. They need a toad sticker. You ever hear the expression toad sticker? I mean, man, <laughs> I mean, a toad sticker. So so he would take that knife, Lawrence Stryker, and he could hit something within, oh, he could throw it at, a say, a fly, the fly walking on the wall. He'd zap like that, boom. It would hit about an inch from the fly. He never hit the fly, actually, but, boy, it was so close that if it was, uh, if it was say, Fu Manchu, Fu Manchu would have been dead, just like that. So we began to practice with the knife. Well... I'm going to tell you something you probably suspected if you've ever tried to throw a knife. Many are called. Few are chosen. I mean, it's like learning to sink 30-foot putts. That is a tough thing to do. Well, that isn't all that Stryker could do. Where do you hear this one? Stryker 
could lasso things. Now, every kid in the world secretly admires a guy that can, can throw a lasso, a lariat. Because, you know, you see him do it in the movies. You know, it looks so simple. You know, they ride the horse, and James Harness is going along, and he goes, whick, 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 and he throws that thing, and pow, he pulls down the Jack Palance. Yeah, he throws a rope on him. And that's a fantastic thing to be able to do. Well, Stryker could throw a lasso. You wouldn't believe it, Stryker. I'm serious. Fantastic. And, and he used to say, okay, we would, we would go out like uh, we would on Saturday. We'd go out on a hike and all that. And he would take this rope that he would put in his, his belt. You know, it was always looped. And he had tied it into a noose, a lasso. Have you ever seen the noose that they make for the lasso? And, you know, he, he wove the rope and all that stuff. And he would say things like, okay, you guys. All right, I'm going to show you how to how to how to use a lasso. See, uh, he always called it a lariat. He said, "I'm going to show you how to use a lariat." And he go, and he make this circle around himself, you know, up and down, over the head, and all that stuff. And Flick and I and Schwartz, I mean, our eyeballs are bugging up like tromped on toad frogs. I mean, <laughs> I mean throw a knife, and, and then he would say, "All right, you kids," he says, "Now listen, all right." He says, "All right, now you try to get away from me. All right, you start running." The minute you would run, he would go, and he throw it right around your neck. Fantastic! Have you ever known a kid that could do that? Well, you could see right away. Now, you're going to ask me, what's this got to do with a turning point in your life? Well, I want to tell you what it had to do. It's a terrible discovery in your life, and it's a turning point in your life, too. If you are fortunate or unfortunate to run into somebody that truly has talent, this blows you out of the water. Because up to that point, I thought I was a pretty good operating kid. This guy could throw knives. He could lasso things. Oh, you haven't heard the end of it, friend. Let me tell you what else he could do. Have you ever seen a guy use a bullwhip? This guy, one of his things that he made in handicraft, they had a thing called leathercraft. He got the merit badge. He wove a whip out of out of uh, rawhide. Now, have you ever seen an actual bull whip woven out of rawhide? Things about seven feet long. You've seen that kind with a little thing on the end, a little knot on the end. He could take that whip. It was fantastic. He's got the rope going on the left hand. He would take the whip and he'd go, crack, whap, bam, like that. Crack, pow. He could split wood with that, with that bull whip. I'll tell you. I, you know, I remember one day Schwartz saying, if I could get, if I could learn how to get that whip, if I could work that whip like Stryker can work it, boy, then Farkas would not give me a tough time. Because every kid at that point had a bully that hovered over him. I don't care who you were. If you were a male, there was a guy that was always laying for you. You had this happen to you? Okay. Can you imagine how you could handle a guy like that if you could throw a knife? If you could, if you could use a bull whip, and if you could use a lasso, <laughs> and 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 not only that, Stryker went even one step forward. More than that, what do you think Stryker also did on top of everything else? Okay, Lawrence Stryker, in his sixteenth year, when I was in his patrol, won the city. Speed Ice Skating Junior Title. 
Now, I don't know whether you <laughs> whether you've ever known a kid that talented. He won the title, and that was a big city, and there were thousands of kids that were trying to beat this guy. He won going away, and as a matter of fact, was mentioned already for Olympic contention. He was a speed skater. Oh, but you haven't heard the end of it, friends. Lawrence Stryker, that year, in his 16th year, his junior year, incidentally, in high school, led the Northern Indiana high school basketball scoring, averaging 21 and a half points a game in Northern Indiana. Can you imagine a guy who could do all of that? And then the final thing, right after he got his Boy Scout Eagle rank that summer. I don't want to tell you this. Now, I know if you're a certain kind of person, you're going to put this down. You're going to put him down for this. Lawrence Stryker. I better not tell you. Got the most beautiful girl in all of Hammond, Indiana, voluptuously pregnant. This kid could do it all. Well, it was a turning point in my life, kid. Knowing Lawrence Stryker opened up new vistas to me. It was at that point that I realized how vapid and untalented Schwartz was. How dumb Flick was. All my other friends. And I began to have the first inkling that there is among us a race of super people. You don't see them often. You only hear about them occasionally. You usually read about them in Earl Wilson's column. Well, you want to hear more about Lawrence Stryker. You'd like to think that he turned out to be working at the garage? Oh, no. Lawrence Stryker was drafted. Six months later, he came home, and he was already up for lieutenant colonel. I don't know how he did it. He came home, I'm telling you, he was already a captain. Only been in the Army six weeks. Wound up a major. I'm serious. How old was he as a major? Nineteen. Shot down eight enemy airplanes in his first patrol. Won the Navy Cross, the DSC. What's he doing now? Well, he owns Indiana. So, you know, they don't always get their comeuppance. This is WOR New York.